I'm James Hahn II, and you're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by Red Wing. This is episode 65.5. Point five episodes are my chance to speak with entrepreneurs, executives, and thought leaders from inside and outside the industry to hear their stories, what inspires their work, what culture drives their company, what innovations they're bringing to the oil field. My guest today is Eric Fiddler, president of our supporting sponsor, Intech Process Automation. Eric has been in the oil industry for 35 years. He began his career working offshore in the Gulf of Mexico back when the simple task of adjusting chokes meant driving a boat to a remote well jacket every hour. He quickly came up to speed and moved into pharmaceuticals. After a brief hiatus, Eric returned to the oil field where he has been automating workflows ever since. His rich understanding of international business, combined with his emphasis on empowering leadership, helped him propel Intech to new heights domestically and abroad. I've been in the industry for 35 years. Okay. I, I started in uh, New Orleans, Louisiana, worked in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, putting control systems in on offshore platforms. So what year What year did you officially start? 1979. 1979, so before oil took the, the, the big 80s dip. Yes. And was it a boom time or what? was it just kind of even? As an engineering student looking for overtime, I had all I wanted for those first couple of years <laughs> to be able to pay for college. Were, were the roughnecks pretty, pretty rough on you when, you when you got out? Oh yeah, they considered engineers O-rings. One O-ring cut, you get another one. Same with engineers. <laughs> <laughs> and so what kind of engineering did you graduate with in terms of a degree? I graduated with a degree in mechanical engineering, mm-hmm. and, uh, but I work in automation, and I have my whole career. Who did you work for when you started? Worked for a company out of uh, New Orleans called Test Incorporated, Test Automation and Controls. How long were you there? Fifteen years. What did you learn in that 15 years? I mean, you're, you, that's, that's a pretty long arc especially for well, I, young, I, young guys coming out of college these days. They don't plan on being in a company for longer than three or five years. I would say I, there's a, there was a three-pronged learning to my learnings there. The first was uh, lots of time in the field interacting with the equipment, so I have an idea of how all the processes work and, and know how to, as a result, know how to apply automation to them. Second piece uh, I rapidly gained project management, so I learned how to manage things. And the third piece, I was uh, significantly involved in their move into the international marketplace, so I learned international business in Asia and Africa, helping them get into those markets. And you say automation. Can you define that for me? At a higher level, it's uh, a, taking applied software and automating work process to enable people to do things more effectively. What did the equipment look like back then? When you look back, are you are you just like, oh my gosh, that was the Bronze Age? <laughs> yeah, the equipment was uh, the systems that I put in in the early days were by and large pneumatic and hydraulic. Occasionally, there would be relay systems on central control systems, so clickety clack electrical relays that eventually interfaced to something pneumatic that operated a valve. There were some strip chart recorders, but the automation was very rudimentary. 
I remember being offshore when natural gas was significantly deregulated, and the platform I was on was in a competitive reservoir where the operating company would try to sell as much as they could put into the pipeline. And during the deregulation period, they were navigating that hourly. The production foreman would pull his hair out because he would get phone calls from the production engineer in New Orleans asking him to go adjust all the wells, and the wells were boat access. They were not adjustable on the primary production facility, but they were remote well jackets. So he put his couple of operators on boats, and they went as fast as they could readjusting chokes to get more flow or less flow, depending on what they could put in the pipeline. And with automation today, it'd be a couple of pushes of a button and a couple of screen adjustments, and away you'd go. But he never, he was always behind. He never got that done to optimal flow in those days. Wow. Yeah, so some low-flying planes. Right. <laughs> Anybody that gets that joke, it's an inside joke. <laughs> um, where did you go from there? I went to, uh, I tried to leave the oil and gas industry. You did? Yeah, I joined uh, Rockwell Automation and uh, held various roles of responsibility trying to break out, but when oil took off again in the last decade, they asked me to play a role in that, and so I wandered back into oil. What When you said you left the oil business, how long were you out of the loop, I guess you could say? In reality, about four years. About, oh, not that long. Not that long. Not that long. It took a while for me to they get just, a career path out because they hired me as an oil and gas guy, uh, and it took me a while to drive myself out of that, and then I found myself back in it mid part of the last decade. It's the godfather, right? keep pulling you back in. That's it. <laughs> what did Rockwell Automation do in general then? Rockwell Automation built uh, controllers that would automate most anything you wanted to uh, approach. And they had uh, software to go over the t on, on top of that. Uh, and they continued to build out that architecture. Uh, I spent a significant part of that five years out of, out of the uh, oil and gas industry helping them with, in the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, through applied systems and, and applied workflow management solutions. For instance, a pharmaceutical company has a production line that they need to put the pills in the bottle and that sort of a thing? Is that yes. kind of an idea? They they weren't as involved in the active ingredient in those days. That's a more of a, a process automation uh, system. And at the time I was involved in that, that was more of a DCS type of realm. But their, their realm was the secondary manufacturing or act, actual tablet formulation uh, there was a series of solutions that enabled real high value. Uh, this is where I learned some of the workflow automation pieces that I've now taken back into oil and gas because in, in the pharmaceutical industry, there was a very tight regulatory environment involved in tracking to ensure that the drug was manufactured as designed under the conditions designed at design conditions and that it yeah, was checked along the way. it's another industry where you have to be perfect because people die. Exactly. Just like, very just like similar to the oil and gas industry. And so they were early adapters of solutions that enabled acceleration of those processes through applied software. And at Rockwell, there was a series of solutions and still are today that enable what is called electronic batch release and, and uh, tracking of people's qualifications and all types of things that accelerate the time to market for the drugs. And those types of tools, while not directly applicable to oil and gas, help me to marry my knowledge of oil and gas process with those uh, 
types of tools so that you can use business intelligence and standard information you have to be more effective as an oil and gas operator. Well, you said time to market. The first thing that came to mind for me was time to first oil. Time to first oil is an important factor <laughs> when you're developing a new field. So how does what you do today play into that? In the oil and gas industry, there's a shrinking pool of subject matter expertise. So taking tools that enable uh, workflow automation, help those experts within a given operating environment become more effective in their roles because they don't spend non-value-add time manipulating data to get it useful. So examples of this would be uh, role-based visualization, where when a problem occurs, they can get right to the crux of the matter with a few clicks on a screen using tools to that in the background manipulate spreadsheets to take that data and make it useful and get it down to what they're interested in seeing. It's also applying things that enable advanced process control, enable loop optimization, enable things that get the process working optimally faster than a person trying to figure out where the settings are and run around and set everything. The analogy is going back to that discussion around well setting in the days of early deregulation and doing it with pneumatic tools where you actually had a person get in a boat and ride around and adjust things with uh, workflow management tools and business intelligence, you can, in a well-automated system, all that can happen automatically. You, you mentioned before about your workflow knowledge. Is it sort of a situation where if A happens, then B happens and as a result, and then C is triggered as well? Am I oversimplifying it? No, you're not oversimplifying it, but I tend to look at it more as walking into an operation, looking at what they're doing or what they're trying to do, and then utilizing commonly available tools to help them do it faster and get better at it. What are some practical examples that you could give us? Uh, well test analysis, right? So commonly uh, wells are tested in this country because oftentimes the, the ownership is different, so you're attributing flow to different owners. But you also test wells to understand when you need to do work on them. Uh, a well test analysis, analysis applies predictive tools to enable you to continue to track how your well's performing based on simple things like flowing tubing pressure over the course of the time that you're not testing it. Right? If you're required to test it once a month, then the other 29 days, you can predict how things are going with available tools and you don't have to go back and have somebody manipulate a spreadsheet to do that on a daily basis to figure out whether or not they should accelerate workover needs. One thing that I've, I've read a lot about on your website and some other um, material is some autom automation around artificial lift. And I know that in this environment that we're in right now, even though price is coming back a little bit, efficiency is everything. Efficiency is everything. Have you seen an uptick in interest in what you do as a result of the lower prices? Because it seems that a lot of people are sort of being forced to adopt technology that they should have adopted a long time ago. I wouldn't say they're being forced to. They're ha they have time to go back and take a look at how they're doing and trying to get better at it. When uh, the industry was blowing and going as shale took off in this country, people were moving so fast trying to get wells completed that they oftentimes really didn't look about look at how they were gathering data from them or how they were automating them to optimize production of what they had. So they're getting time now to go back and look at that. So there is increasing interest in the things that we offer 
for artificial lift control, for uh, optimization of production facilities through applied tools. What have you seen that's different in this downturn and uptick that's been different than the last 35 years? The length. (laughs) (laughs) How do you mean? This one seems to be going longer, right? And uh, so far, uh, the analyst predictions have not have been um, misleading or not completely accurate as we've entered into this downturn and as we've ridden through it. It it seems to be dragging out a bit longer. The recovery will be a while. Has it really been longer, though, or does it just feel that way because we're going through it? I I would say it feels that way because we're going through it. But some analysts do say that it's going longer, though it all depends who you follow. We jumped around a little bit. Let's go back to when was Intech, did you found Intech? I did not find, find, find Intech. But <laughs> uh, the, the owners founded Intech in 1997 mm-hmm. and incorporated in the U.S. in 1998. Where did they found it at? It was originally started in the Middle East, in Pakistan. How did they find you? The Rockwell team here brought me to meet the owner the year he set up. And we became friends, and then he asked me to come help him with his business. So you've been helping to grow the American presence since the beginning? No, but in the mid part of uh, 2006, I started working on the American presence and the global presence. Uh, I'm probably more involved globally because of my time in Asia in the 90s than I am involved in driving the American presence. What do you think, given your international knowledge, is a blind spot for Texas oilmen I actually was just having lunch with a, a listener from Ecuador a few weeks ago. He's the one I told you I gave I gave my bag to. One of the things that he he mentioned to me was he said he said that he's glad I'm on the show to ask Mark the question so he doesn't have to because a lot of the time guys like him come to Houston to do business and they're talking to an engineer who's assuming that you know everything that he's talking and they don't necessarily understand this is a global industry and not everyone has the same nomenclature. Have you ever run into anything like that out there internationally? I, I have not, because in the markets I go to, they tend to look to see what the Americans are doing. That's the lower-hanging fruit or the easier access points for an American to do business, right? They're interested in learning about what the Americans do. But I would say the blind spot is the focus on efficiencies in the international markets, uh, like China, where... They're, they have more water than oil, and so they're uh, very much focused on how to efficiently get it out of the ground. I think the other blind spot is the readiness of those types of markets to enter new markets bringing money to finance things and reinvest in infrastructure in return for getting access to the oil. And and that that would be a significant blind spot for companies operating here. You're talking about them investing here or us going abroad? Both, right, because they come here. But if you look at uh, what the national oil companies in China are doing when they go into Africa or Latin America, right, they show up with uh, full integrated supply chain to develop fields. But then they also uh, take some of the money they earn and reinvest in infrastructure development, water and wastewater, uh, highways, things of that nature that expand the reach and the footprint of, of the businesses in China to enter those markets. American companies going out don't necessarily think as complete as international companies? I would say when they show up, their value is 
time to market and technology, and they're strictly after the oil and make some money on it and leave. There's a difference. You say they as in us, or they? Multinational or publicly traded oil companies, that are, that's their whole value. And, mm-hmm. and what they're competing against is companies that take a different approach. So a national oil company's, le- not leverage, but advantage over a publicly traded company would be the publicly traded company has to satisfy investors, whereas a national oil company is operated by a country and they can operate as they see fit? Well, there's some aspects of that, but some of these companies that are doing it are publicly, publicly traded, but their value proposition is different. How do you mean? What shareholders expect are, are uh, built in a different way, so they manage expectations on the earnings and they get a different look. So, if I take Sinopec or CNPC, for example, two yeah. Chinese companies, right? They're busy in Iraq, they're busy in Africa, they're busy in, in Latin America, in Venezuela, and other countries down there. And they show up and they reinvest part of the earnings in infrastructure. And they, and they also show up financed, right? So they, they'll work on a different revenue model than, than a company seeking a full production sharing contract. When you said they show up financed, do American companies not show up financed? Or how do you mean when you say that? The American companies have to raise their money and carry the note. Some of the national companies will show up with government money that will finance the project in return for placing the project on domestic companies from that country. So pumps, valves, software, automation systems, etc., are domestically bought. Whereas in we might farm in, to use the wrong term, in the, in the wrong place? Well, the, a, a multinational company will have to show up with CapEx money through their own sources, and then they, they uh, go to market in the most efficient way they can build the facility using their normal practices. The big difference at the end is they don't invest in infrastructure in the, in the countries to the extent they don't have to. If you're, if you're an American company and you want to do it right, is that really the one thing that, that stands out is the reinvestment in the country? No, I wouldn't say that. You just need to be cognizant of it. You, the conversation started with where's their blind spot in this, and I think that's the blind spot when, if you talk to companies operating in, in our environment here in the U.S. What is your compare and contrast internationally, domestically? I personally, from my digital marketing background, I look at it this way, which is the Knox and so forth, the, the larger oil companies from around the world are much more active on social media and different things like that, but that has nothing to do with what we're talking about right here. Well, being active on social media is the battle for uh, expertise, a shrinking knowledge pool of people that understand how to do things in the oil and gas industry, as in any industry, really. And being active in social media enables you to market yourself for employees that you can, through tools, empower to become knowledgeable and help you run the facilities. I'm going to go back. Where did you go to school? I went to Georgia Tech. Georgia Tech? Yes. Are you from Georgia? No, I'm from New Orleans. You're from New Orleans and you went to Georgia Tech? I went to a good engineering school, good value for money. It's it's that way today. It looked that way... uh, how many more years ago when I went there? Almost 40. What was the curriculum like for a mechanical engineer back then? Very theoretical. You know, lots of traditional mechanical engineering things, gears, fluid and pipes, thermodynamics, a little bit of electrical, a little bit of electrical engineering and physics and the normal things you take to get ready for engineering courses. I like thermo and I like fluid, fluid dynamics very much. Taught a fluids lab for a while when I was there. 
When you got out into the field and started working, what were some of the things that you were like, well, hell, they didn't teach us this? <laughs> As I worked in automation and not uh, mechanical engineering, there was a whole bunch of that stuff. That <laughs> but I think that going through a, a Georgia Tech education prepares you to get yourself ready for what's coming in, in the world, right? You're equipped to react and apply problem solving to it to get it done. And I applied problem solving methods to, I had a professor uh, my senior year that told me I should keep a notepad by the bed and I did for a long time when I was working as a project manager or project engineer because I would face a dilemma. Uh, I'd go to sleep and I'd wake up in the middle of the night understanding what to do with it and I'd scrawl it on that piece of paper and go back to sleep. And uh, it, it, the speed with which things happen in the real world, I would say, is probably what I would would have been. Man, they didn't tell me about that. What would you say to people that are coming? Because it right now, it's a real fact that there's the great crew change on hand, and it's sort of been accelerated by the downturn. A lot of people taking early retirements and things like that, and younger people having to step into roles that they've not been groomed for in the traditional sense over decades. What, what do you say to the, to the younger people in the oil field right now in terms of what they should focus on? I would say that they should focus on practice of using tools, particularly people wanting to enter the oil field. Uh, and this leads back to automation because it's up to people like me and people like and the company that I work for, Intech Process Automation and the other automation companies, to continue to automate workflow and capture knowledge that enables younger people to come up to speed faster and to become effective in their jobs. For them to do that, they have to be used to using tools, practicing on social media and practicing with some of those things are good uh, ways to learn collaboration so that you can adopt these collaborative tools that are available through applied automation that empower you to become effective in your job quicker. And it was kind of interesting because I was traveling in Brazil. I had a down day and I was out doing a sightseeing thing and I sat next to this elderly French woman on a tour bus and I was, she was asking me what I did and I explained it to her and she said, well, that's, you've got to take and apply automation to help these young people become effective. And uh, in reality, that was a good commercial for what automation guys like me need to do and what we'd love to be hired to do. I heard that a lot from Alan Gilmer when I worked at Drilling Info that they were in a perfect position the way that the workforce was heading because of the fact that, I mean, a lot of the guys that so much of the wisdom and knowledge is just intuitively within them, data has to come in and fill that gap now. Every time one of those old guys solves something, right, or works on something, the transaction needs to be captured automatically so that somebody facing it again can replay it and see what was applied. And through that, the knowledge transfer happens quicker than if you try to get the, the experienced person to talk to the younger person. And there really isn't the time to do that in, in the world today. So applied tools and being able to re replay things and find guidance uh, or connect on the internet and collaborate with somebody to get a little help and get jump, get jump started on a problem. Those are the things that need to happen to succeed going forward. What have you seen in terms of technological adoption from the old timers do you get a lot of pushback when you go to roll out within a company, or is it just some time to teach them the tools? It, it all depends on the guidance from management, like anything else. In, in a world where you get 
tremendous pushback. There has not been guiding principles and goals established from management, right? So those people are reluctant to take these tools out of concern of affecting their jobs. But where people have been gold and there's been investment in training, it creates an environment where they're more willing to learn. It's the same thing as you seeing old guys like me carrying around, you know, smartphones, guiding principles. You need a tool to get something done, you learn how to use the tool, provided your goal to get it done. I think that's the key for anything. We do content training and things like that. And it was one of the reasons that things worked as well as they did when I built the in what we call quote unquote inbound marketing engine at Drilling Info. It was top down. Everyone in the in the whole organization was on board. I, I wasn't even writing the content. I was just writing the coattails of these geniuses that were writing it. And then I'd punch it up, put a little keyword research in there and get it in front of as many eyeballs as possible. In any enterprise, and this went on in pharmaceutical as well, you know, going back to that part of the conversation, as an, when as an executive you're deciding to invest in tools to make your operation more efficient, you need to create an environment where people want to use the tools. And it's through getting people on board by goal alignment, and it's also in empowering them to succeed through training. And both pieces are required. When one doesn't happen, you will surely fail. If they want to succeed, then Intech has the tools to be able to help them get in the right direction. Or put in the, in the reverse and the negative way, if you're not going to get on board with both of those things, probably not qualified to work with you, right? Well, we'll always take any work that comes our way, but, but <laughs> we, we prefer to have both those pieces in place with a willing organization because then we all succeed together. If anybody wanted to connect with you or learn more about what you all do, where would you send them? To our website. Which w is www.intechww.com. Got it. Intech. So it's I N T E C H W W.com. Eric Fiddler. As I asked at the beginning, I was going to go Fiedler, but you're not Norwegian, apparently. <laughs> no, I'm not Norwegian. <laughs> so I appreciate you did this interview. It's been a pleasure. Good. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this 0.5 episode of the Oil and Gas This Week podcast brought to you by Red Wing. You can find the show notes for this episode, which include links to everything we talked about and Eric's contact information at triberocket.com forward slash TWintech. You can also leave any comments you have about the episode there, and that's triberocket.com forward slash TWintech. Join us again next time when we talk to John Trueblood, president of Trueblood Resources, Inc., about what it's like to be a small independent operator in the Anadarko Basin. What our goal has always been, and, and I'm not sure completely remains there, I, I'm, I'm debating now, was to carve out a nice niche area where we'd be a moderate-sized company, profitable, and that's been, you know, challenging. Until then, go find some grease guys. <laughs> <laughs>